Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. What's happening in Qatar are people of dying of natural causes. They're dying of heat exhaustion. They're dying of heart attack. And these are people who have been brought from their own countries into Qatar. So you know they're not recruiting people with disabilities. They're not recruiting people who are anything other than the fittest of people, right? And yet they're still dying at huge numbers and huge rates, which tells you that they're working in awful conditions. They're underfed. They're probably underhydrated. And you can literally go to airports in these countries on the flight from Qatar to this country, one or two coffins come off the conveyor belt every single day. Who's looking forward to the Football World Cup? Yes, football, football. It sounds like I'm doing an ad, but I'm not. It's it's the intro. Now, I've gone out of my way to not make this episode too much about football or soccer as Americans or Australians might even say or football as the Brazilians would say. I always uh, love how that word sounds. And that's because while it's my passion, it's possibly not yours. But I think that's exactly why you should pay attention to what's happening here, because there are some really dark criminal enterprises going on behind the scenes, with FIFA, the world's governing authority, to blame. Football, as in the game of soccer, is the most popular and most watched sport in the world, which makes it perfect for a brutal regime to hide behind. Teams now pay players hundreds of thousands of pounds and even more dollars per week to play, and they purchase players from other clubs for tens or hundreds of millions of pounds. For instance, the world record is currently held by Brazilian player Neymar, for whom the French team Paris Saint-Germain paid the Spanish team Barcelona £190 million. That's $215 million. Recently, the club Newcastle in the north of England were bought by the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia. Manchester City is owned by Sheikh Mansour, the deputy prime minister of the United Arab Emirates. These are countries with their own cultural legacies, traditions and beauty. But they are also rife with human rights abuses and atrocities. But by becoming visible on the shirts, stadia and lips of the footballing world they are able to manage their public impression. This can be seen in the way some Newcastle fans reacted upon their club being bought by the Saudis, wearing Saudi Gutra headdresses to games. This is called sport washing and is done around the world. And as today's guest Connor Powell makes clear, this is something that has gone on for a long, long time and is certainly not limited to the financial might of the Middle East. We'll talk today about the brutal dictatorships of Argentina and Chile who hosted World Cups and played games in the very stadia where political prisoners were being kept. And England, who supported apartheid in South Africa during the cup that they won in 1966. But right now, the eyes of the world are on the tiny Middle Eastern country of Qatar because that country's government bribed officials to get the World Cup played there. And yet, it's still going on. 
Connor, who is the host of the brilliant podcast Lords of Soccer, will explain just how insane it was to give Qatar the World Cup to host, particularly given the 6,500 construction workers thought to have died while trying to build the stadiums that Qatar doesn't even have, the thousands of displaced African children brought in to play in the future for the football team that Qatar doesn't have, and the laws about gay displays of affection and the consumption of alcohol that make Qatar at best utterly inappropriate and at worst an abhorrent location for a World Cup. And let's remember, Qatar beat the US of all places to host the Games. And at the heart of all this is a really shady mafia organisation called FIFA, the International Federation of Association Football. They're one of the world's scariest and biggest organised crime groups and have long been using football to cover up human rights abuses and to line their pockets with gold. Do enjoy the World Cup though, because what else can you do? And find out a lot more about the ins and outs of this theocratic, undiplomatic and abusive organisation, FIFA, in Connor's fantastic podcast, Lords of Soccer. Get in touch with him on Twitter, Connor Powell. Do say hi, support our guests. I've written this and done the interview with Connor a couple of months in advance, so I don't know who's going to be next, but I can assure you it'll be good and interesting. Hope you enjoy today's episode. As I say, I don't think you need to be a football or soccer fan to do so, but let me know your thoughts on andrewgold underscore OK on Twitter or Instagram. Come say hi, come support the podcast on patreon.com slash andrewgold. But now you're on the edge of sport washing of abusive regimes with Connor Powell. Connor, welcome on the edge. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, it's good to have you. So we're not going to talk too much about, you know, football, 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 soccer, whatever we call it, because I know uh, most of my audience is actually American like you. Most are not big football or soccer fans. um, And we don't need to ram it down everyone's throats, but it's a sport. It's a game. It's political. It's played around the world and is used as soft power for brutal regimes. So uh, tell me a little bit about your, your podcast and what you've been looking into just a little brief overview yeah so the lords of soccer is a podcast about fifa's corruption um this is not a sports podcast it is very much a true crime a very much a corruption podcast a very much a shine a light on the bad guys uh who run professional international global soccer um fifa is the organization that oversees the world cup they sort of set the rules um for global soccer and you might think that they are a bunch of soccer fans, uh, people who really love the sport. But the reality is, is throughout most of its history, it's been run by people who are businessmen who've sort of cashed in on the popularity of the sport. Some of them are fans. Some of them love the game. Others could care less about it. But the one thing, particularly in the last 40 to 50 years, that sort of unified everybody who's run FIFA is that they have got their fingers in the cookie jar uh, and they've been taking money out of FIFA's a bank account um, and out of sponsorship deals, and they've been enriching themselves. And it's opened the sport, but largely the FIFA organization, up to a huge amount of corruption. Uh, so, you know, this podcast, when we conceived it, 
people asked, is it a sports podcast? And I kept trying to say, no, it really isn't. Like, if you love the game, this is not the sport for you. If you want a breakdown of details of each game and things like that. If you love the game and you're pissed off about the way FIFA operates, this is definitely something. If you like true crime, this is something. And, you know, for the first time in about 100 years, we're supposed to have a World Cup this year. Uh, Or sorry, let me rephrase that. We're supposed to have a World Cup this year. And for the first time in about 100 years, the World Cup hasn't been played during the summer. It's going to be played in the fall. And that's a direct result. The decision to host the World Cup in 2022 in Qatar uh, is a direct result of FIFA's corruption. And that's really what sort of sets the stage for this entire podcast. Yeah, and it's it's fascinating. And I think for anybody who might be thinking that you're sort of uh, exaggerating or that, uh, okay, well, there's probably bad guys like this in football, in any sport or in any big organization, I mean, I, I would just reiterate that, that FIFA really is something else. They, they do, there seems to be nothing quite like FIFA in terms of just having, you know, no transparency, nobody that they have to look up to, who, who's, who nobody who they have to account to uh, or to account for them. And 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 as you as you say at the end of uh, your episode about Qatar in particular, there's a Las Vegas uh, museum for organized crime, and they are in it. It's just a bunch of sort of FIFA guys in the corner, so they are pretty much uh, an organized crime mafia. Yeah, I mean, so there's this mob museum in in Las Vegas that sort of tells the story of organized crime, and it obviously has a lot of Al Capone and uh, sort of Sicilian mafia stuff. It has cartel um, exhibits. There's an entire corner left there for FIFA. And if you listen to what the U.S. Department of Justice, the head of the IRS, um, the U.S. Attorney General said in 2015, when they started rounding up, charging and indicting members of the FIFA community, they described it as essentially an ongoing cartel, um, a white collar cartel that basically it met every definition of organized crime and of a cartel, you know, long running over multiple decades, uh, lots of criminal um, actions that weren't just white collar, but you know everything from vote bribing, um, vote rigging, to bribery, to racketeering, to fraud. I mean, uh, everything that you would list for a criminal investigation, FIFA had it according to the Department of Justice. And in the last seven years, more than 50 people have been charged or indicted, and 27 people have pled guilty to these crimes. So and that's all global FIFA soccer people. Um, some of them are directly in the FIFA organization. Some of them are people who work with FIFA on broadcasting rights and things like that. So yeah, I mean, it fits every definition of an ongoing criminal organization. And there's sort of this debate, is FIFA better today? Have they cleaned up their act? And, and I would say, yeah, FIFA is better today but they're still a criminal organization in a lot of ways. The, the World Cup is still being held in Qatar, and we can go into the issues and, and reasons why that's sort of an awful thing for world soccer, but also for just sport in general. Um, but, you know, Johnny Infantino, uh, Gianni Infantino, the current head of FIFA, he's under investigation. The past FIFA president just got acquitted in Switzerland of corruption, but it, only because Switzerland doesn't really prosecute corruption is the only reason he got off. Um, you know, if it was in any other country, he probably would have been convicted. But Switzerland, Switzerland just doesn't have very strong anti-corruption laws. And so Sepp Blatter, the former president, skated, essentially. 
unbelievable that he's gotten away with it. And it's very frustrating, especially, you know, as we say, this is something not just for fans of the sport, but for, for everyone that should be worried about and stressed out as we'll get into the whys and the hows. But, you know, I am a, a big football soccer fan myself. I'm going to keep using those both those words just synonymously. Uh, but I, it really annoys me. And I've just seen that, like, I, it was a great article by a, a sports writer called Martin Samuel about it in the Daily Mail the other day, just about, you know, because the England team have decided to wear uh, arm bands that are like pro you know i don't even know diversity or something and it's like that's that's it that's all you're doing you're still going you're still going to play the game why is it still in fact no let's go into why it's bad then we can go into why it's still going ahead i mean you start the episode with this brutal image of coffins filling up airports what's going on there yeah so qatar is a small gas rich oil rich country in the you know the gulf arab world it's only a country of about depending on how you count its population, anywhere from two to three million people. How many of them are citizens versus how many are permanent residents is gets a little dodgy, but it's a small country. It has no soccer pedigree, no football pedigree. It doesn't have uh, a team that's competed internationally or punched above its weight. Um, it doesn't have a, a significant amount of stadiums historically, but it did have a lot of money and it had a desire to be um, on the world stage, politically, internationally, it just wanted attention. It basically said, we got all these billions of dollars. How do we make ourselves important? And in 2010, FIFA was doing something they had never done before, which was they were bidding out two World Cups in a row. So normally there is a uh, about six to eight years before a World Cup is played. FIFA bids it out. You get a whole bunch of different countries that sort of say, here's how our plan to build stadiums. Here's our plan to attract uh, television. Here's our plan to build new infrastructure to have a great tournament. And normally it's six to eight years in advance and they pick countries in Europe one year and then Asia another year, America another. And then, you know, they sort of move it around. Well, in 2010, FIFA did something they had never done. They bid out two of them at the same time, the 2018 and the 2022 World Cup. And this was particularly troublesome because it already took a system that was dodgy and rife with problems in terms of how they bid it out. And it basically made it so that everybody could collude, everybody could do vote buying, I'll vote for you if you vote for me. And it just created this entire system that already was problematic. And Qatar threw their hat into the ring. And basically the Qataris, there's about and, and most times there are 25 people on FIFA's executive committee. They were all men. Uh, they were almost all sort of uh, European um, or European connected, even the sort of members from Africa and Asia. You know, a lot of them resided in Europe and stuff like that. So they're a very tight group of businessmen. And they had been used to getting kickbacks. And, and Qatar basically exploited this entire system to win the 2020 World Cup. Russia got the 2018 World Cup. Um, there's never really been a real investigation into how Russia got the 2018 World Cup because Russia literally deleted every computer file that was ever used to discuss the 2018 World Cup process. And they just basically said, we're not even going to engage in this. Qatar was sort of forced to. Um, they were a little a more overt. Um, you know, it's a difference between the Qataris and the Russians, right? I mean, Putin basically just made it happen and then said we're not you know we're not engaging 
God, I was I was I was pissed off at the time, obviously, because I think the Russia one, the UK was was struggling to get that, right. and they had they were sort of left embarrassed because they went with Beckham, uh, David yeah. Beckham, and Prince William, and it was sort of this tour de force. They thought yeah. that that's what's going to get us the, the to host the World Cup. We're going to have David Beckham, and everyone's going to be so amazed by the star power of him and Prince William. And it's like it was so naive and so pathetic, and then Russia got it. So so you're you're saying there was never any proof that that was that was actually a bribe that that won it for Russia. Well, so one of my favorite stories about the 2019 or sorry, the 2010 uh, Russia vote is a couple days. They all gathered in Switzerland. Uh, this is where FIFA was headquartered um, for this vote. You know, there's celebrities, everyone from Elle McPherson to uh, Bill Clinton to David Beckham. Everybody's there to basically convince these 25 FIFA guys to vote. Right. And about a day before the actual vote in, tw- in December of 2010, Putin says, I'm not coming to town. And the British media is all like, oh, this is a great sign. This is a great sign. He, he, he knows that England's going to lose or England's going to win and Russia's going to lose. So he's not even bothered to showing up to, to, to do this interview. And then the vote comes down and you see the video of the, the English delegation and they just sit there like, oh my God, <laughs> what happened? And, and Putin not showing up probably should have been the greatest tell. And we talk about this in the Lords of Soccer podcast in this episode. I think it's the fourth or a third or fourth episode. And, it's Putin not showing up was a sign he knew he already had it in the bag. Now, how did he go about doing it? It's never been clear because when all the allegations came up, Putin and the Russians basically deleted everything, all the servers, all the emails, everything. And of course, God only knows what FIFA did internally, but like there's never been a real investigation. There's been rumors and of bribery and vote rigging and stuff like that. But Russia got lucky to an extent because the next vote just a few minutes later in December of 2010 was even more outrageous. At least Russia has a professional league, right? They have stadiums. They have infrastructure. People go there um, for various things. There's a history of European soccer. Qatar doesn't have any of that. Qatar didn't have any stadiums. They didn't have any real infrastructure. Um, And so when they won the vote in December of 2010, everyone's mind is like, are you kidding me? And they beat the United States among other countries. And the only person who it's rumored that didn't essentially take a Qatari bribe in 2010 was the American official, Chuck Blazer. And he always joked, and he was as crooked as they came, and he always joked after it sort of his corruption came out, he always joked, he said, I'm a little offended they didn't try to bribe me. He, he said that to his biographer, and he said, you know, I'm not saying I would have taken it, basically, but, you know, they didn't even try. You know, and, and the Qataris basically just felt that there was no way they were going to convince Chuck Blazer to vote against America's interest because he would have been the king of American soccer if the World Cup was being played in 2020, uh, 2022. Um, but of course, like he hinted, I might have been open to it. You know, if the, if the number was right, I might have taken it. Um, and so Qatar gets this and they promised to build 12 brand new stadiums. They're going to have air conditioning. It's going to be played in the summer. Forget about the heat. Forget about the human rights abuses. Forget about the effort that it's going to take to build this entire World Cup infrastructure. And you mentioned the bodies. The the last episode starts of Lords of Soccer. It starts with the bodies being returned home to countries like Nepal and India and Pakistan. And that's because, according to multiple surveys, The Guardian having the sort of the most quality survey and and, and study and report on this. At least 6,500 coffins and bodies have been sent from Qatar to these other countries 
that Qatar has pulled people to work and build this infrastructure have been sent in the last seven, eight, nine years. And there are overwhelmingly young men ages 20 to 35. Now, that's a demographic that should not be dying at any high rate, right? Yeah, there's essentially, unless you're in war, that's a demographic that is the healthiest. Um, they're employed. They're in a country where there is decent infrastructure, but they're dying because essentially the Qataris had to use slave labor to build the soccer infrastructure for the World Cup. They toned it back from 12 stadiums down to eight. Um, the World Cup has been moved from the summer, which it has always been played in, to the basically winter to November because the heat, even with air conditioning, even with these, uh, you know, technologically advanced uh, stadiums, the heat was just, it's going to be too brutal. So they moved it um, to November. And so this summer we should, we should already know who the 2022 world cup champion is. And we don't, and it's going to wreak havoc on the international leagues in Europe and America and a whole bunch of other countries, because they're going to literally have to stop the European and North American soccer leagues to play this World Cup. Um, and on top of that, you've got people dying, building the infrastructure. You've got incredible, credible investigations that have uncovered huge amounts of vote rigging and buying. And yet FIFA hasn't done anything to even address these issues, essentially. You know, they've, they are making some pro forma statements and they've, they've pushed Qatar to improve some of their human rights laws. And in fairness to Qatar, they're better than every other Arab country when it comes to human rights now, but that's the lowest bar you should have to pass. I did. I read that. Um, they, they sort of made a big show of that and then recently have gone back on a few things with a few statements about, you know, when you come out here, don't be holding hands with someone, particularly if it's a gay partner uh, and, and, you know, don't be drinking alcohol and things like that. So they sort of gone, they sort of, you know, when they had to put on the PR, they did. And now they've, it's gone a bit more conservative and, and, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's two issues with Qatar ho- hosting the 2022 World Cup, right? The first one is, is how did they get it? And what was the cost to build the infrastructure versus ho- hosting it in a country whether it's England, America, Australia, that has a stadium infrastructure, has the ability to, you know, manage tourism and things like that. Qatar is it? That's one issue. The actual tournament itself is a whole other issue. Um, Qatar is a place where uh, being gay is illegal. Um, it's very strict punishments. It's a place where any type of public display of affection can land you in jail. It's a place where alcohol is not available. Um, it's a place where they don't know how to deal with these internally uh as well like are they just going to arrest people they say they won't but they have the ability to do that um you know think about the people who go to the world cup they want to go have a good time they may be popping in for a couple uh days to see a couple matches and you know they're going to drink on the game uh, on the nights of the games uh that they're not going to right um everyone can picture the sort of drunken Scottish guys jumping in fountains, right? Or, um, you know, the loud Americans having too many shots of whatever in the bar and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, I think Qatar is totally unprepared for this. FIFA hasn't really made it clear um, how they're going to deal with it. Um, FIFA has created a program where they're going to bring in some human rights activists to essentially be across the country to report these things. But there's no there's no indication that they're going to be able to to convince Qatar not to punish people should they want to. And and the other thing that is really problematic, and this is for the players, is they've really condensed the schedule down. Um, so players are not going to have as much time in between matches as they normally would. And 
you know, I, all these players stay in great hotels. They fly first class. They've got great therapy. But you're asking these players to stop their, their professional leagues, go to Qatar, do a condensed World Cup, and then go immediately back to their professional leagues. I, I'm telling you, and I've talked to doctors about this, that there's going to be some serious injuries coming out of this World Cup that we don't normally see. You always see injuries, right? It's a part of any sport. But this is going to impact your favorite team at home. This is going to impact your favorite domestic league's outcome. And you just have to ask yourself, is this really worth it? Is it 6,500 people dying? Um, the amount of corruption, um, the amount of impact on your own domestic league. Uh, is this really worth it to have it in a country where there's no soccer pedigree and no infrastructure? Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I'm not excited. I'm not excited at all to watch it. Uh, it just feels like a, an annoyance in the middle of the, the, as you're saying, the football season. Which sucks because the World Cup is great. The World Cup is arguably one of the best sporting events. And I say that as an American who's, um, you know, who's, who's focused generally, you know, American baseball, football, basketball. But I love the World Cup. I've been watching it since 2000, or, um, 1990, essentially. And I love the World Cup. And, and I have the same feeling you do, and a lot of people do, and that sucks. Yeah, don't want to watch it, don't really care, annoyed that it's happening. I would cancel it right now, right the second, cancel the whole thing and just teach them a lesson, teach someone a lesson because it's disgraceful what they're doing. Really, really makes me angry. And I mean, what you were saying about, um, you know, the drinking and of course the gay laws and stuff, the, the, hom the homophobic laws they have out there, um, it reminds me a little bit of, you know, like that, there was that American guy who was in North Korea who took something off of a, he took a <laughs> poster down from, do you remember in North Korea? Yeah. And he, he was killed for it. And you feel like, look, it might go down without a hitch. Russia did. I, as far as I remember, there weren't any big yeah. problems in Russia during the World Cup um, as a, that, that were able to get out in the press anyway. But it, there could be one or two things that happen that are going to be, you know, travesties and all for the sake of some football. So I think talking to a lot of people, I think the World Cup is going to go off. All the games we played, we will crown a winner. And people will come into Qatar and people will leave Qatar, right? Um, they have a massive shortage of hotels. That's going to be a huge issue. They're bringing in cruise liners to basically sit in the bays to be excess hotels. People will fly in from Dubai and other places. That's all going to be a mess. I, I've been talking to some people on the security side. And if you remember, the 2012 London Olympics had a whole bunch of security issues. Um, and they signed, the company that did the overarching security, signed a contract at more than a year out to provide security and security infrastructure, you know, the bag checking, the, the queuing, the line, the, the basic stuff that impact, you know, the fans who are going to the games or the events. 
the 2012 um, London Olympics had a whole host of issues. And that contract was signed and was in development more than a year, almost almost two years, I think, in advance. Qatar has yet to sign most of the security contracts needed to carry out the security infrastructure in the country. We are now two and a half months away from this, and they have not begun serious training of the people they're bringing in. Now, NATO is helping. The Brits are sending people. Uh, you know, Everybody's going to supply, supply the sort of terrorism overarching security but it's that how do you get into the stadium and have your bag checked that type of security that is still a total mess and so yeah it's going to go off without a hitch but i would not want to go and i talked to a guy who's um works in the security industry who's already helping to bring um you know sort of executive type people to the country and they're having a total mess about um securing uh, hotels, how they're going to move these people. And these aren't VIPs, but these are rich guys who are expected to travel, you know, really well. And it, it, they're already have massive concerns about all this and how it's going to go down. It's just so insane, isn't it? Because I understand that, that, you know, there might be bribes and you can choose a less appropriate setting. But what they've done is they've chosen probably the least appropriate setting in the world over. I mean, everyone would have loved to have it in America. I, th I think I remember Australia was the other one and there was one other was there. But yeah. it could have been. Um, yeah, there was, I was Spain and Portugal had a joint bid. I mean, there was Belgium, I think, had a bid. I mean, the thing is, is Sepp Blatter and FIFA wanted to bring the game to the Middle East. And I totally understand that. Even with the issues of human rights in the Middle East, I totally get that. I, I do think bringing international things to countries that are essentially authoritarian governments often can be a... Um, it can be a spurring to opening things up. I, I, there, there is an argument for that. The problem is, is FIFA didn't care about that. That's not that FIFA only cared about getting the most money in return. So they weren't interested in sort of bringing openness, democracy, um, you know, progressive sort of views on things to Qatar. The other thing is, if you're going to bring it to the Middle East, do what they did with Japan and, and Korea. Do what they're going to do with uh, the next World Cup, which is the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Do it as a joint bid between Qatar and the UAE. And the UAE has a history of hosting events. I mean, Dubai is an international city that has a lot of concerts. They have the Rugby Sevens. They do a lot of different things. There is no reason that we should be spending billions of dollars building stadiums in, in Qatar for them to essentially be useless, right? Like there are still stadiums that are standing empty in Brazil from 2014, that were built and never used again. And Qatar is going to be even worse. There's no, there's no domestic league. There's no international competitions there. These stadiums are empty. And so if FIFA is really serious about doing this the right way and saying, you know, what, what's our legacy? How do, we, how do we come out of this process and say there's, there's something positive? They could have forced Saudi Arabia or Qatar or Kuwait or other countries to do a joint bid and said, like, we know you've got these issues. We want to work with you. Um, let's each build two new stadiums so that we spread this out. Egypt has a history of a, of a, yeah. of a, um, a soccer league that's, I don't want to say good, but decent. Yeah, There's a lot of ways they could have done this. Um, and FIFA basically didn't even care. They just cared that they were getting money literally under the table. And they cared that Qatar was going to fund everything and spend a huge amount of money and waste a huge amount of human life and capital to get this done. And how do we have an idea of the amounts of money that, you know, the money that the 
the vote the judges were being given for this because to completely this is so ridiculous that it would have to be like god this is gonna have to be a mad amount of money and i'm just gonna go and disappear because this is insane Uh, this is the thing i i haven't seen total numbers anywhere because it's all sort of a hodgepodge of things and like that um i think the question is was it a huge amount of money and as far as I can tell, we're not talking about a huge amount of money. I mean, um, Jack Warner, when South Africa got the World Cup, um, South Africa essentially bribed Jack Warner, who was a FIFA uh, vice president. He ran CONCACAF here in the Caribbean and North America. There's there's a whole there's several million dollars that essentially went missing and ended up in his pocket. If we're being honest, um, that's the highest as I as far as I can tell. Um, in terms of real corruption, some of these are like a hundred thousand dollars, twenty five thousand dollars, and and the crazy thing is, if you look at professional sports, whether it's the NFL, the Premier League, um, La Liga, any of these, there's a ton of money flowing through these. These guys who run these sports, they get paid a ton of money. They can literally pay themselves. I mean, the, the NFL commissioner makes like fifty million dollars a year. Now it's a multi billion a year business. Like fifty million is nothing to them. FIFA could have been essentially taking a ton of money for themselves and there would still be plenty of money for everything. And they could have done it on the up and up, but it's just the culture of FIFA was so corrupt that they would rather be spreading money around in envelopes for $50,000 or $100,000 so they didn't have to declare it because God knows none of these guys wanted to pay taxes or do anything on the up and up. So, I mean, I think that's kind of the thing is like, we're not talking about a huge amount of money that it would have taken for FIFA to be legitimate. Um, there's plenty of money in the system. They got several billion dollars in the bank. This this four-year cycle for this World Cup is going to gross about $6 billion. And the reason that FIFA loves Qatar and a country like Qatar is Qatar's footing the bill for everything. Brazil footed the bill for everything. FIFA puts no money up. And so everything, so the more money that a country can bring to the table and say, we'll spend this money, the the happier FIFA is. And so what you're left with are countries like Qatar, China, Russia, you know, countries that really don't care about their population, that they want the glory of hosting the World Cup or the Olympics. Um, and that's that's really what global sport has turned into to a large extent. It's the dictatorships, it's the authoritarian governments. Now, I, I will say, I think FIFA made a really smart choice by putting the next World Cup in North America, essentially, because there's great infrastructure. It's not going to cost them. And they're not going to have these human rights issues. They're not going to have these um, cost issues because a lot of these stadiums are already good professional stadiums. It's There's so much stuff that's just about money now. And it's so sad as a fan. And I, I won't go too far into it again because it might not be of that much interest to those who are not fans. But there is a constant move by FIFA and, and other parts of football to make things uh, less interesting, I think, for the fans. I mean, there's the, one of the arguments, one of the things that frustrates me is they're, they're constantly making the World Cup bigger and, and the Euro competition bigger, and they make it impossible for the big countries not to qualify because they know that they get money if the big countries qualify. But for me, as an, a fan of England, now that makes it really boring. What's the point in watching the qualifying if we're going to get in every time? That the top three teams, everyone goes through. You know, 2008, England didn't qualify. It was very sad for me, but it meant that I was excited the next time that they did. And it's just constantly everything. They want to get rid of sort of relegation as well in the, the, the with the leagues they want to make, the Euro whatever league they're going to make. Uh, any peril 
they want to get rid of because they know that we've got enough. We're just going to keep watching it, aren't we? I mean, what can we do? Right, because it's ingrained to watch these things, right? You're going to watch the World Cup. And I mean, John Oliver has a, a famous skit, you know, basically on his TV show on HBO here in the United States where he's just like, he lists everything that's wrong with FIFA. Yeah. And then he basically says, and you know, the worst part is I'm a sucker. I'm going to watch every single second of it. And I hate that about myself. And I, I totally yeah, agree. Um, one of my favorite stories that we did in this, that we did an episode on Zhao Havelange. And he was FIFA's president from 74 to 98. And he's really the guy that brought in the real corruption into FIFA. He was a gangster. His father was an arms dealer. He, um, he was connected to the uh, Brazilian military regime. He was stealing money from them when he was running the Brazilian Sports Federation. Then he gets elected to, to run FIFA. One of his closest friends was one of South America's top gangsters, this guy, Castor de Andrade. And he ran um, uh, essentially an illegal gambling racket in Brazil. He smuggled money and weapons for other... Uh, cartels and, and people like that. And Zhao Havelange, FIFA's president, was a dear friend of his. And at one point, Brazilian investigators are closing in on this guy, Castor. And Castor goes to Zhao Havelange, FIFA's president in the late 80s, and says, I need something that's a get out of jail free. I need a, I need a way to make sure these prosecutors get off my back. And so Zhao Havelange literally writes a letter that says, Castor is a family man. He's a sportsman. He is a great guy. And he's my friend. And he signs it. Zhao Havelange. And the gist of the letter was, don't you dare touch my effing friend. Because I'm important. And you're just a cop or a prosecutor. And I run FIFA. And I'm Brazilian. And I will screw you. And Castor runs around Brazil for about four or five years, waving this letter, showing it to people. And, and prosecutors are trying to go after him, but they're not really going after him. And finally, this comes out. It was a secret. Nobody knew about this letter, but it comes out in the early 90s. And what does Zhao Havelange do? Right when this scandal's breaking, that FIFA's president is essentially vouching for a South American gangster, Zhao Havelange expands the next World Cup. And says, we're going to bring in more teams. And all of the calls for Zhao Havelange to step aside disappear overnight. Because he just bought a whole bunch of more support and votes. Because every country was like, we got a better chance of being in the World Cup now. But ruins it for the fans. Right? I mean, yeah. I mean, the stories that we uncovered in Lords of Soccer. Um, and again, a lot of great journalism. Andrew Jennings and some of these other guys who have done these books on FIFA. There's great stories everywhere. Nobody's ever sort of put together the entire umbrella history of FIFA, which is what we tried to do. We went back in its roots. We looked at its modern day stuff. Essentially, we wanted to answer the question of how did we get to a 2022 World Cup in Qatar? And there are all of these crazy, crazy stories. I mean, there's in the 70s, FIFA is essentially colluding and supporting right-wing, um, brutal military regimes in Chile and in Argentina. And at one point, Chile is supposed to host um, a World Cup qualifying match, um, but they're using the stadium to torture and kill political dissidents. And this is 73. And, and the world international community is telling FIFA, just move the match. The Soviet Union, which was supposed to play this qualifying uh, game against Chile, um, basically says, we'll play the game. Like, we don't really care about political you know, brutality, but like, can we not do it in the stadium where there's literally prisoners as we speak? And instead of saying FIFA saying like, 
Yeah, maybe we can move it to a neutral place. Yeah, we'll move it to El Salvador or to Mexico or you know some other South American country, Central American country. FIFA sends a couple people to the stadium in um, uh, Chile to walk around, to have a look. There's prisoners yelling, saying, look at us, look at us. Oh. FIFA's officials are there on the ground for 20 minutes. They check the grass. They look at the lights, everything, and they say, yeah, it looks great. Play the game. And the Soviet Union says, we're not going to participate in this. Like, we are not going to play this game. So they don't show up. So FIFA, instead of just canceling the game and saying, Chile, you're on to the next round, you know, that's a forfeit. Chile may, uh, FIFA makes Chile put 11 players on the field. They kick the ball and they dribble it in and they score a goal. And then the referee blows his whistle and says, game over. So FIFA wanted in the record book for that to be a one nothing victory for Chile. So, like, this is the craziness of this organization. Even before Zhao Havelin sort of brought in the professional bribery, racketeering, corruption, white-collar stuff. In the 60s and 70s, um, you know, FIFA is is basically running interference for the white African, South African soccer federation, which won't let black players play. They're supporting the right-wing dictatorship in Argentina. And they're supporting the, the right-wing dictatorship in Chile as well. Um, and so this is the craziness of the organization. And it's what we do in this podcast is lay out how we got to 2022. And it's really not hard. It's like literally decades worth of corruption and malfeasance. It's just crazy. It, it winds me up so much. It really annoys me because I've been going, it's almost like it's my, uh, it's the closest, I'm, I'm an atheist. So it's the closest thing to what I have to a religion. I've, I've been going to <laughs> Tottenham games since I was a child. I've been suffering for my sins, I suppose, because it's mostly been suffering as a Tottenham and an England fan. Um, and to see what they're doing to the game and, and from what you're saying, have been doing for decades and no one at the stadiums really knows about that. And and what really annoys me is I've been getting frustrated anyway by, you know, football has, I think quite arrogantly, particularly in, in England, uh, inserted itself at the centre of like, you know, virtue, a lot of virtue signalling on both sides of the political spectrum. So you end up, I went to a game recently and before the game even started, I had sort of saluted five or six different things on, you know, one that was a vaguely right wing thing, which is wearing a poppy for the armed forces right. and one that's a left-wing thing which is lgbt you know right. all things that i am very much for but i just think what what has this got to do with i just want to go and watch a game and like what if i if i want to be homophobic or if i want to hate the armed forces then i should why do i have to you know I, that's my personal belief like you should be able to be a bastard if you want um and just watch a game they put themselves so front and center with that and like I said, I was saying before, they've got an armband that's got like a few colours on it to say we're for diversity. And yet they're still going to the World Cup, every team. How easy would it have been for England, uh, America? I don't even know if America's in the World Cup this year. Are they in the World Cup? Yeah, we are. Yeah, America, yeah. England. Uh, we got a good side this year. Oh, good. Well, I'm pleased about that. But yeah, all the a few European teams. You know, let's say Spain, Italy and France get together and go, we're not going to go to this. Well, there's no World Cup then. You have to change it, put it somewhere else. And no one did. Uh, so I'm going to, uh, you know, as an English fan, 1966 is sort of the crowning moment of English soccer, right? You win the World Cup on your home soil. And at the time, the, the president of FIFA is a guy named Stanley Rouse, Sir Stanley. And um, he's, you know, he's an old Victorian colonial empire guy. Um, he, you know, he thinks the world of sort of European uh, Christianity and the way that you know, Europe should be the shining light for the entire world. And he's fiercely, fiercely protective of South Africa's apartheid regime. Um, and 
1966 World Cup, you probably don't know, was entirely boycotted by the continent of Africa. Right. No, I didn't know that. And they, they boycotted it for two reasons, essentially. The first was Stanley Rouse's support um, for, uh, for South Africa. FIFA in 1960 actually did something incredible. FIFA voted to basically suspend and punish South Africa for not allowing integration in, on the pitch. And Stanley Rouse immediately overturns that. They do it essentially again. And Stanley Rouse fights them tooth and nail to basically protect the apartheid regime soccer organization. And so by the time 66 rolls around, Africa is livid over this. And then Stanley Rouse basically says, there's going to be one open spot for Africa, for Asia, and, and the South Pacific. And you guys are all going to have to fight for this one spot because we have our automatic spots for um, South America and Europe. And the Africans are like, wait, 50% of the world is going to have to battle over this one spot. And we've got to play this white apartheid regime. No. And they literally boycott the entire tournament. Now, is Africa at this moment a powerhouse in the soccer community? No. Would they have probably, would any of those teams probably have won? No, of course not. But English, England's crowning soccer moment, winning the World Cup on home soil. It's tainted in a little bit because an entire continent said we're not going to play. And one of the interesting things, do you know who the leading scorer of the 66 World Cup? I, I, I always butcher his name, but he was an um, uh, African player from Mozambique who played for Portugal because it was still part of the Portuguese empire. Yes. Uh, what was his? He was, he was amazing, wasn't he? Uh, it's like a, a squee bay or something like that. I always butcher his name. Um, and I, know, I apologize. Yeah. Sorry. Um, and so African soccer was growing. It was important in, in 66. And the entire continent basically said, we're not going to participate in this. So there are very few examples um, of countries sort of, or nations, uh, you know, groups of teams saying, we're not going to participate. We don't like the way this is. And it just happens that one of them comes in the crowning moment, the, the moment of glory for English soccer. Did you tell me that because I um, asked whether America was in the World Cup this year? Is that uh, your revenge you know, on me? <laughs> you know, it's one of my favorite stories to tell to anyone uh, with an English accent or Scottish accent because the, the Scots yeah. just beam and glow and, you know, love it. And then um, <laughs> it's just it's like one more knife in the chest of anyone from England. Oh, well, the others, if you speak to any Germans who refuse to believe the ball went over the line uh, yeah. for the winner of that. But, you know, look, I, I know that. I mean, I lived in Argentina for for quite some time, six years in the end, and they they they've won it i think three times and i know that one of them there was a game where like to stay in the competition they had to win was it five nil or something against peru and they won exactly by the amount of goals and it's like come on we know what happened there well so the 78 world cup should never have been played in argentina argentina essentially has a coup and i think in 76 the military takes over fifa had already given the world cup to argentina years before um, but basically, you've got this military regime. The country has rapid inflation. They're literally taking people off the street in, in Argentina, putting them onto airplanes and throwing them out of airplanes into the ocean. And these bodies of these dissidents are washing up on other South American countries. They're taking pregnant women who are dissidents, cutting them open, killing the women, giving the babies to regime supporters. I mean, this is all documented. Human Rights Watch did uh, um, a whole report leading up to it. There are 
email, not emails, but there are letters in FIFA's archives about countries and other governments saying, please do not do the World Cup here. And FIFA goes ahead because Zhao Havalange is president. He's Brazilian. He loves the Brazilian military dictatorship. He is friends with other dictators in the region. And it's a total joke, the entire World Cup. And basically, once the regime there lines up and and gets FIFA support to have the the World Cup and they're not going to pull it, then they set about trying to make sure that Argentina wins on home soil. And... There's a whole lot of shenanigans. Some of them are basic stuff like, you know, outside of the um, the stadium or sorry, outside of the hotel. Anytime Argentina is playing a game, the, the police just disappear and the fans are out there screaming and yelling all night against the team's players and stuff like that. Um, but it's the it's the semifinal match that is really the controversial one. And essentially... Argentina needs to win by four goals to advance. If it's a semifinal, how, how could it... They need to win by four. Was it two legs or something? Yeah, so essentially, there's two, in 78, there were two knockout rounds. Okay. Um, and Brazil should have gone on based on goal differential. Um, FIFA allowed Argentina to schedule the Brazil game first that day. And then Argentina is playing Peru later in the day. And so they knew exactly how many goals they needed. And... Um, there are all sorts of allegations, really credible allegations, that the Argentinian government threatened, bribed, and basically did everything they can to make sure Peru lost this match. I mean, there's people who testified in court, signed affidavits. There's uh, a, a Peruvian players say, yes, we were offered bribes. I didn't take it, but we were offered. Um, there's multiple people who said that. Um, that. That stuff is all over the place. Uh, there's there's a whole bunch of stuff. I always think the most interesting fact about how that game was rigged was one of the Argentinian government officials, who's the finance minister, who argued against spending all of this money on this World Cup. When the fourth goal went in, in that match, when they, and Argentina needed to beat Peru by four goals, when the fourth goal went in, a bomb went off in his house. Almost as if what? the Argentinian government knew that that fourth goal was going to go in and they were going to move on. And he laughed. I saw an interview with him where I think it was with a Dutch documentary about this thing. And his name's Juan Ailman. He was the finance minister. And basically he's like, yeah, that that's the regime. That's what they did. They, they knew this game was rigged. And because I had spoken out about how much money Argentina should or shouldn't spend on the World Cup, they blew up my house when the fourth goal went on. <laughs> like... like that's the insanity of that entire World Cup. Now, obviously, Argentina goes on to win uh, and, and um, to win the the final. There isn't really great evidence about how they rigged that. If they did rig it, there's really good evidence about how they rigged the semifinal. Um, and yeah, have a listen to the Lords of Soccer. I think the World Cup of Shame. Uh, it's a two part episode or two part story, basically, and it's uh, I think it's episodes nine and ten or eight and nine, and it really goes in. We go in deep into that World Cup and the gross human rights abuses, uh, FIFA turning a blind eye, actively supporting this right wing right wing regime as well. Um, it, it's it's jaw dropping. 
The problem, I mean, it's such a shame because it then, when there are these stories, which are some of the most beautiful stories in football of maybe the, the minnows, the, 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 the underdogs doing really well, it now makes you question everything. And just off the top of my head, I'm thinking of, I mean, there was that year South Korea hosted the World Cup and they got to the semi-final. For all I know, I mean, maybe you might tell me differently. I don't think there's any evidence of anything untoward. They just really overperformed in their home country. But it, make, it, it casts aspersions, doesn't it now? Um, I, I don't know anything concrete about that. I mean, part of the thing is, there's been so little investigative research into a lot of these things. Andrew Jennings was the king of it. He's the guy who it really propped it up uh, open. Uh, Alan Tomlinson, some of these other guys have done some really great. Uh, Jans Weinreich in Germany. These guys have done the really hard work. But there's just so many allegations and so many dodgy things. But I, I did interview a, a journalist who said that the first World Cup draw, like the first World Cup vote that he covered, was the one where South Korea and Japan got got the vote. And he said to me, that was the first time that I said to myself, this just isn't on the up and up. There's something not right about this entire process. And, you know, it's really the sort of mid-90s when that starts springing up. A lot of people start saying, this just doesn't feel right. Something's not not right in the way this league, not league, this tournament, this organization is run. And... You know, the mid-90s is the end of the Zhao Havelange era. He, he he gets replaced by Sepp Blatter in 98 on a totally rigged vote as well. And the entire vote in 1998 is to elect the new president, which Sepp Blatter wins. The only issue is corruption within FIFA. Like if you watch, I went back and watched a lot of the speeches and, and the news coverage and stuff like that. The only thing anyone's talking about is corruption. And Pele gives a famous speech basically right before the vote in 1998. And he basically says, I support the UEFA president who's running um, uh, for uh, FIFA's president. Um, and I'm forgetting his name as well. I apologize. Was it, was but it Platini? No, no, it's not Platini. It's, um, it was a sweet, God, sorry, I'm forgetting some of these names. But um, Pele basically says, because all these other guys are corrupt and I, I don't want a corrupt FIFA. I want an uncorrupt FIFA. And this is Pele sure. speaking out, right? Um, and so, yeah, there's just this whole um, effort in the mid-90s to clean up the sport, to call it out. And the reality is, is like, there was too much money. There's too many corrupt guys running the sport and nobody cared. That's the thing. It's, it's so frustrating. I want to get back to... Qatar now and you were saying about you know people dying uh building a lot of the stadia and uh, a lot of the infrastructure around that as well it's not just the stadia they came out with some sort of stats of like oh it's only a few people who've died building the you know the actual stadium uh but it's 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 thousands um what are they dying of heat exhaustion or something everything um uh, most of the death certificates and this is part of the research that's been done by us and others most of the death certificates don't give a nat- uh, a cause of death they, they usually list cause of death as natural um so what goes into a natural death in a 27 year old uh, worker from nepal right probably heat exhaustion probably malnourishment um probably unsafe um environment for the building and yeah you make the you make the valid point which is what fifa's argument and qatar's argument is is that it's only like three people that have actually died on the job sites for the actual fifa stadiums but that's not what the fifa world cup is about it's about the roads that have to be built the shopping mall so qatar can get this revenue recouped it's about the new um uh, concert venues. It's about the hotels. It's about all of these other things that go into this 30-day World Cup. 
And the numbers outside of the FIFA stadiums are atrocious. And when you see the way that these guys live, I mean, a lot of them were living essentially in uh, prisons where there would be like one kitchen being shared by like 50 to 60 people, toilets overflowing with sewage. Um, a lot of them weren't getting paid on time or if they were getting paid at all. I mean, one of the stories we do in the last episode is the the building that the Qatari World Cup organizing committee used to essentially plan all of the um, World Cup out of. It came out while they were using this building that the workers who built that building had never been paid. So essentially they were slave labor building the the, the, the tower that FIFA's representatives in Qatar were working out of. And disgusting. Yeah, it's disgusting. And I mean, every part of it is bad. And again, I, I will give Qatar a little bit of credit that they have instituted some things. Um, they now have mandatory pay. It has to all be electronic into bank accounts. That's a good thing, right? Like you can track this stuff. Has they been, has somebody been paid? Yes or no? That's easy. Um, they've loosened the restrictions on um, switching from jobs because a lot of these guys would get hired to work for one company. If the company was abusive, they couldn't switch without going home. Um, and so they've made some changes. And, and Qatar deserves credit in that sense. And FIFA deserves a little bit of credit. But it's it doesn't even cover all of the issues that Qatar has. Are any of these changes going to survive the World Cup? Like, will they be in place next year? Probably not. For what? For what? What will they be there for? It, it, it really... And, and, and these people were taken, I believe, or, or convinced to come to Qatar to build from various other countries around them, sort of with promises of, of money and things like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Qatar, like other Gulf Arab countries have a shortage of laborers, right? Um, the, the domestic population essentially lives off of the oil revenue, gas revenue, so they don't work uh, in any of these manual jobs. You have to build what was promised was 12 stadiums, but in reality ended up being eight stadiums plus, you know, like 100,000 hotel rooms for the World Cup. Like, you're going to have to import import labor. And so they went to Nepal, they went to um, India, they went to Pakistan, they went to a whole bunch of different African countries. And you can literally go to airports in these countries and on the flight from do uh, on the flight from Qatar to this country one or two coffins come off the conveyor belt every single day right i mean think about it if 6500 people have died and you've got let's say about a dozen countries that are supplying most of the labor 365 days a year like you're basically at one or two coffins a day coming home to most of these places even if it were just three people i can't think of I mean, it's not it's not typical. I th I, and I might be wrong. Some a laborer might tell me in the UK or in the States that I'm wrong about this and I just don't see it in the news. But I would think it'd be quite a big story. Somebody was working on one of the football stadia and just died. That How often does that? Yeah, the, the London Olympics, I think, I think had a couple people who died while building construction. Wow. And, and that happens. Like other countries, you have accidents on, on, on building sites, right? I mean, it's dangerous. You're talking about things. The difference is, is it, it was generally people falling or some type of accident mishap. What's happening in Qatar, people are dying of natural causes, right? They're dying of heat exhaustion. They're dying of heart attack. And, and these are people who have been brought from their own countries into Qatar. So you know they're not recruiting people with disabilities. They're not recruiting people who are anything other than the fittest of people, right? And yet they're still dying at huge numbers and huge rates, which tells you that they're working in awful conditions. They're underfed. They're probably underhydrated. And it's day in and day out. 
Um, and they're working six days a week, most of them. And, and you know, and they're working 24 hour shifts. I mean, the only way you build this much infrastructure is if you are building 24 hours a day. And so it's not, not only is it huge numbers in comparison to like the London Olympics or the Brazil World Cup, but you know, in the London Olympics, you might have a 65 year old working on a job site who's been doing it for 45 years and he might have a heart attack. It's tragic. It's sad, but you can't necessarily say it's directly related to the job. But when you have 6,500 people plus dying of natural causes, um, the only thing you can conclude is that this is a direct re uh, relationship to the environment, to the building site, and to the way that they're conducting these huge infrastructure projects. And these are things that FIFA knew, yes. knew would happen. Yeah, it's been raised every single year. And then, you know, Sepp Blatter was um, constantly saying, we're not going to move this. You know, it's it, it's... It's the responsibility and the job of the domestic countries to ensure the safety of builders. It's not FIFA's job. Uh, and that was, and that was Sepp Ladder's line for years until he got the boot in 2015. And, and, and again, I would say Gianni Infantino has been better at the PR of this. Um, he, he's, he's basically said, yeah, we're working, you know, like let's, we're, we're, we're instituting these reforms. We're pushing Qatar to make these reforms. We're working together. Like they've been way better on the PR of this. Um, but in, in actuality, how much has changed? I don't think a whole lot. I think you talk to most human rights activists. I think you talk to most people who are looking into FIFA corruption and they'll tell you that like the reality is not much has improved across the board. Yeah, moments here and there, a project there, a project there, it's better. But overall, it's not much better. They've got blood on their hands. And I, I try on this podcast not to judge because I don't, I always think, you know, I might be in a different position and who knows what I might do. And maybe I would be tempted by money or this or that. And if I'd been raised differently, I hate judging people. But this is one situation where it would have been so easy for my beloved Harry Kane or and Pulisic in America and all the different just come together and go, we're not, there are people dying. So we can play football. We're not. We're not going to play. But you know, I don't think it should be on the players. I, I really don't think it should be on the players. I, I I understand that they're the most visible, but one of the things that I take away is FIFA has so much money. They don't have to cut corners. Like doing the things the right way might cost them some money, but when you're talking about six billion dollars in revenue, almost all of it, which is profit, because they don't build anything. Let's say they allocated several hundred million dollars for doing things the right way to really enforcing construction contracts and safety and things like that. Would that cost FIFA any real money? I mean, if you cut quarters on the house that you're building, you know, it's the difference between spending, I don't know, three or four hundred thousand pounds or dollars. Um, and do you want to spend an extra 15,000 on this or that? Like, that's real money to real people. I'm not saying people should cut corners, but $250 million to FIFA, it's nothing, right? Like it, it should be on them just to do the right thing um, because it's the right thing. You know, we do an episode on um, the whole women's sport uh, of soccer and stuff like that and the way FIFA has treated the women's game. And one of the points that Mary Harvey, who is a former U.S. goalkeeper and Michelle Akers, uh, constantly told us was like, there's a ton of money to be made in the women's game and has been for years. And yet FIFA literally wouldn't invest any money to make huge amounts of money. 
Now they're better here recently, but like for a lot of years, they really just like wouldn't do it. And their point was like FIFA loves money. And yet when it comes to making money on the women's game, they wouldn't invest any money. And all you can walk away with that is, is like FIFA loves money. But at the same time, they're just sort of such awful people that they would turn their nose up at making money on the women's game because they don't want to be seen supporting women in sport. Like, that's literally what it comes down to. They're just sort of sexist and stuff. And, you know, there's the racism with South Africa in the 60s and the the support for brutal dictators in the 70s. There's the corruption of the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. And, And what you take away was what I took away doing the series is that at every turn, FIFA sort of always done the wrong thing. Yeah, well, it looks like they they have done and they will continue to do. The thing with the women's game, though, I sometimes, and by the way, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you at all, uh, and if there's a way to make money, I sometimes think, though, that some people in Britain in particular, again, it's the virtue stuff because they say a lot, you know, what's being done about the women's? And then I say to them, well, are you going to go to the games next year? Are you going to go to any of the women's games? And they don't. And that's my problem with it. But that's not true. The 2018 World Cup, or sorry, it was the 2019 World Cup, Women's World Cup in France, over a billion people around the world watched. The stadium in Paris was sold out. Yeah, but the games in England are not. This It's like a couple, a thousand or two thousand ago. Fair enough. And, and that's the same with the United States. Although we just had 30,000 to watch LA um, and San Diego play a women's match here. Oh, but the States, that's chalk and cheese though, isn't it? Because the culture of women playing soccer. True, but we've invested in women's sports for years, right? Like uh, my, my sister was playing high-level competitive women's soccer in the 80s and early 90s. I mean, there's a reason that we defeated everybody for years in every, you know, in a lot of games is because we've been investing in these. Is it the culture as well? I mean, is it not also because there's all these other sports in America that have been stereotypically, rightly or wrongly, seen as like the men's sports and women's? And it is funny how you go to different countries and some sports are, you know, and this is a very regressive way of seeing it, but these are the women's sports. And these, you know, lacrosse I always saw as a, a women's sport, but in other countries it's seen as a big burly man sport, which is just so ridiculous, the whole thing. But again, the way you change the perception of a sport is by investing in it, right? Um, by making the players strong and fit and as talented as you can at the local level and then at the high school level and growing up. Because then when you put a, nobody wants to watch a bad product. The fact of the matter is, is the American women's team is not a bad product. They do better in ratings in America than the men's team because they've won championships. They've won tournaments. I'm not saying, I mean, I I actually, I've watched, I watched the UEFA. The women's English team was fantastic. They were really good. Now, do I think people are going to go watch local games all the time? No, no, no. I, like, I understand that. But at the highest level, the, the, the women's game can get eyeballs. And again, what does it cost to support the women's game at the lower levels to FIFA? It's a rounding Not very much. It's, Yeah, Not $10 very million dollars probably for each team around the world or something like that. I, I, we interviewed, again, I interviewed Michelle Akers, who's arguably the, the greatest women's player ever. And she was telling me about the horrific trip they went to Haiti in 1990 or 91 for a qualifying match. And they stayed in a hotel where they had to basically clean and shower themselves in the swimming pool because the water was so dirty and so disgusting. That was a FIFA qualifying tournament for the women's. They couldn't even, they, first of all, they held it in Haiti, right? What, could you ever see a men's tournament being held in Haiti for qualification? Like it's insane. Um, yeah. And they put them up in hotels. Yeah. But they put them up in hotels where they like, didn't have running water and stuff. Um, and, and so you think, okay, what if you just give them basic 
accommodations that are comparable to the men's. Again, it's a rounding error for FIFA. It's not hard to do that. You would be getting huge ratings. I mean, we the U.S. is different. I, I fully admit that. But like the Brazilian women's team is is a solid team. I think Argentina has a good team. Um, Sweden and some of these Scandinavian teams have really good teams. Even China's had a good women's team. Um, they've invested in these things. The U.K. is now. I mean, sorry, England is now investing in the women's team, um, and the product is really good. And so, th- but I, I, the point that I was trying to make was is like where there was money to be made with a small amount of investment. FIFA would turn their nose up on that because they just it, it was it was this culture of we can we can siphon a ton of money off the men's game who even cares about the women's game yeah well they they I mean they they do seem to be complete scum I remember uh, when you know my team Tottenham they signed um, Alex Morgan a very a famous American player recently that was that was uh, quite exciting for everyone it's sort of big news but also because of there is that excitement around American yeah. women's soccer so it was, you know. But she left after a few months. It was disappointing. <laughs> it's the weather. I think she's so, she's in San Diego or LA now. So she's part of the reason why they just had thirty five thousand, thirty two thousand, whatever in this this match this week. Right. Well, fair. You know, fair enough. Um, I, I still want to ask you one thing. I haven't gotten onto yet was we talked about Qatar bringing in workers and stuff. But what about? I mean, they bring in. They don't even have players, so they're bringing in players. And there was a word you used, which was. I mean, it's an extreme word, but I quite liked it because it's extreme. Which was which was child harvesting. What are they doing? So before Qatar won the world, uh, the rights to host the World Cup, they began a process, and this is detailed in a fantastic book by a guy named Sebastian Abbott, who was an AP writer, and he wrote a book about sort of searching for the next big player. And Qatar, at this point, was not on FIFA's radar. Uh, this is early 2000s, but they essentially decided they wanted to be a player in global sports, particularly soccer football. And so they... They created a program to basically scour every small village in Africa first and then around the world looking for players. And they brought them to a Qatar Academy. Um, it was called the Inspire Academy, I think. Um, and they brought them to a, a, a beautiful facility in Qatar to train them, to feed them, to educate them, to get them playing at a really high level. And they went through like 500,000 players in Africa um, to look for these players. And some of them have turned out to be really good players. And it was never implied that you have to play for Qatar. And, and not all of them did. But there was sort of the implication, not a demand, but the implication like, you know, if you you, you want to play for Qatar, you can change your name. We'll give you money for the rest of your life. Like, you're going to help us um, compete. And again, a lot of countries do this in the Olympics. Um, you know, they recruit track runners from Kenya. You know, if you're if you're the fourth best long-distance runner in Kenya – you can go to any country in the world you want, basically. And so other countries do this. I mean, there's, a, there's a whole host of this in, in America and other countries. Um, but but Qatar, was, Qatar wasn't doing it on like a one-off, two-off um, level. I mean, they were literally systematically harvesting kids from around the world, some as young as like nine or ten. And they had Messi helping out with a slick commercial. They were giving out free Nike shoes and swag and, and stuff like that. So they really... I mean, they were drawing these kids in. The parents were encouraged to send them, send their children off to Qatar um, to go learn to be a professional footballer, professional soccer player. And uh, they're going to, you know, promises of money. And, you know, there are some that have done it. Yeah, they've, nobody high level has come out of this program. Um, they were academies, but they were academies for Qatar's purposes, not for the team's purposes and stuff like that. And a lot of European and 
um, British teams have had relationships with them. They've gone there to train. And, and so there's sort of this infusion. Now, I think it was 2006 when other FIFA countries, particularly African countries, were like, uh, FIFA, you're these guys over here who have no soccer pedigree, who have no power within FIFA are trying to harvest our players from Senegal and Nigeria. Uh, this is going to end. And so FIFA put an end to it. They basically said, uh, you know, the requirement to be on the national team was multiple years now um, after 2016. So FIFA sort of put an end to the child harvesting, um, you know, with the exception of a few rare cases. And so that program essentially ended. But what it did do was sort of cement in FIFA's minds, particularly Set Blatter's mind, that Qatar was on to something. They, if they had this much money to do this, man, they have a lot of money. And, and, and originally, Set Blatter was totally against doing anything with Qatar. He just thought they were sort of not worth their effort. He had been burned by a Qatari uh, Mohammed bin Hammam, who uh, had been a supporter of um, a Sepp Blatter, and then sort of they were battling over some stuff. And then ultimately, Mohammed bin Hammam runs against Sepp Blatter in 2011 for FIFA's president. Um, but for a lot of years, Sepp sort of wary and suspicious. But after that harvesting effort, by 2008, Sepp's running around telling the world, we're like, we're going to do a World Cup in Qatar. We're going to do a World Cup in Qatar. And so basically, he realized how much money was on the table for himself and for other people. Um, and yeah, he becomes a huge advocate for the Qataris within FIFA going forward. And Mohammed bin Hammam in 2010 has literally given out money to everyone. Connor Powell, it's a, it's a scary, scary story that you've laid out for us there. Thank you so much for being on the edge. Um, and well, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having and talking about Lords of Soccer and talking about FIFA corruption. Um, you know, I think we can enjoy the games, but the more we know about the, the criminal element that runs it, I think the better. That's right. And yes, Duke, I nearly forgot that bit. I, I, I'm usually good at remembering it, but go get Lords of Soccer on Spotify, Apple, all the usual places, right? Yep, it's everywhere. It's really good, really well researched, uh, beautifully narrated. Connor's lovely voice. So go out there and get it. And uh, yeah, thanks, Connor. Thank you. Thank you to my wonderful and learned guest, Connor Powell. Please do support our guests by checking out the Lord of Soccer podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Connor is a fountain of knowledge and is quite rightly angered by the way that these guys at FIFA are ruining the game so many of us know and love. Do get in touch with Connor on Twitter. Let him know you enjoyed hearing from him and say hi to, to him from me and say hi to me from him or something on andrewgold underscore OK on Twitter and Instagram. Support the podcast on patreon.com slash andrewgold. And let me know, did you enjoy that episode even if you aren't a football fan? Was it all news to you or of interest? And does it place the upcoming World Cup and all the news bound to come up around it into perspective and context when all is said and done in a few weeks time there can only be one winner and that is fifa well actually qatar as well as well as the team that wins the tournament of course they're winners too but you know what i mean thanks for dropping by i'll see you next time 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.